Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 18, Gateway to Hope, August 7th, Day 3. Life can change in the blink of an eye. They're not God. These nurses are not God. I sat in the corner of Archer's hospital room, steamed up, and also wondering what Archer was thinking when the nurse told me it was just a spasm and was in my imagination. I swear I saw his arm move. Yes, as part of a jerk when they suctioned him, but I also saw his right arm move on its own ever so slightly. I did. Her words still stung. I couldn't shake it. And not even so much for the reality that she might be right, but the harshness of ripping away any hope that Archer might have. He's right there too, you know? I mean, just because he can't talk and can't move doesn't mean he can't hear and isn't affected. We needed to hold hope so that Archer would feel the hope too. We couldn't lose Archer. We just couldn't. I watched my two oldest children, Paula and Pete, as they soberly watched over Archer. Pete had stopped reading to him quite some time ago. I watched how gently Pete rearranged Archer's covers and pushed back his hair. It was so tender. I felt I was also watching his heart break, and it was almost too much to bear. Two of my four boys down. It was too much to bear. And Paula? She was looking like she was a see-through stone. What was happening? Please, Lord, please help my family. Please don't let this change our family. Please don't let it separate us. Oh, God, I need us to stay together. I need us to, God. We're a team. Please. I'll do whatever it takes. Please protect all my children, please. I had this feeling as I sat there in conversation with the Lord that this was going to impact all of us and I needed to be alert. Like I needed to keep my eyes open. But you know, even with all the watchfulness, There are some things, heck, I suppose many things, we will never know about the deep rivers that run through our children. But I got a tiny glimpse of something that took my breath away when my oldest son Pete and I looked back for the first time recently, five years later from that week in the trauma center. Here's an excerpt of my interview with my son, Pete Semft. You know, I'm really um, thinking and wondering as the oldest uh, brother in the Semft family, what it's been like for you. Still, you know, makes me sad to to think about. I think he was had a and I feel like we're we're both like have similar interests in just like you know culture and style and art and things like that. And you know, I see, see, saw like a lot of 
you know, the stuff that Archer would wear and do and, and draw and, and listen to and things like that were you know, the same as, as I did. But yeah, you were, um, you were skateboarding and kind of, you know, very culturally open and edgy and All right, just like, you know, artistic, very strong interest in like, you know, street art and graffiti and things yeah. like that, that, you know, Archer and I both liked and still like. Yeah. Yeah. You were very drawn to uh, street art and uh, spent a lot of time with people on the street when skateboarding and yeah 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 everybody does it their own way yeah you are the first you know in the family to kind of open this open our eyes for all those kinds of things you know a lot of interests are kind of similar to mine too it's you know did them all a little bit better you know we both saw what he was doing before and how special all that was you know Makes me feel almost kind of, you know, selfish sometimes. That, you know, why, why did that have happen to him and not me? Why Archer and not me? I felt a dagger right through my heart on that revelation. My heart stopped beating for a moment. I also felt the preciousness of that moment that Pete had the courage to tell me that. I loved him so completely in that moment. You know what I mean? Like, of course we love our children deeply. But in that moment, as brutally painful as it was, it was like an old soul meeting Another old soul. There are so many things I may never know about the impact of Archer's accident on our family. I wonder if you've ever experienced a family tragedy and what burdens your children might be carrying. Heavy beliefs for them, being shouldered alone, perhaps for years. I don't know if that is fully appreciated the impact on the entire family unit of a trauma. My sense is that the experience of great loss or death of a sibling or child is enormous and changes the family system. Sure, the system is resilient and can absorb the loss and move forward. I can tell you this from personal experience. But absorbing is very different from metabolizing. When we absorb shock, it often gets trapped because we have absorbed it. The body and the heart and the brain did their job. They were intelligent enough to numb us out so we can move forward. But the holding container of the shock, it's intended to be temporary. It wants to be freed. The only way I know to free that absorbed grief is a combination of courage right alongside vulnerability. Like Pete, I really marveled at his bravery to open up like that about what he said. My sense is that the burdens we each carry that are almost unspeakable are made lighter when we share them, you know? But to think my son has carried that alone for five years ripped me up. I love him so much. You know, back in Archer's hospital room, as I watched and saw my oldest son and daughter with expressions I had never seen before and that I could not really describe except to say intense confusion and even waves 
of terror on their faces. But Paula was sort of gray and checked out, while Pete was aloof, but almost hyper-aroused, antsy. But they both had a sort of nothingness in their eyes, like we had all stepped into a black hole. Maybe you have had a similar experience. Oh, how a catastrophic injury or grave loss of a family member so affects the family unit. I know now, five years later, that we were all experiencing the physical manifestations of trauma. And I understand now about storage in the body to survive, but not necessarily to thrive in the long run. When Pete and I met recently to talk about it, it may have been easier for us both had Pete not shared with me that dark reality he had been carrying. Brutal thoughts, but real thoughts. Thoughts that may even have become beliefs. Yes, as a family, we've soldiered on, living life, looking and feeling okay. But he'd have carried that heaviness on his own. And as his mom, who loves him, I'd be living with some of that darkness too because we're interconnected and the wholeness of my child who is a part of me was incomplete. Have you ever thought of it that way? He could have kept it to himself or told a therapist, but not me. I mean, that would have been okay but he chose to share it with me. And I felt a part of me that was unspoken, sort of melt. And now we both know and can love each other through that as he exposes that darkness to the light of today, to the light of our love, to the light of his own for himself. And so we can all live more into the light of the divine. I know God doesn't want us to suffer. Anyone you love, to learn one of their secrets they have carried alone while almost unbearable, to just receive it, might afford a little relief, and a little room for digestion and metabolizing that part that was contained and carried. We need to listen and understand each other's trauma stories and then share the load of the burdens as we together walk the healing journey. And all our burdens become lighter. That's what I think. I pray. And I hope. Hope. Back in the intensive care unit that afternoon, when I saw that one nurse again, after I'd had some time to collect my thoughts about it, I said to her, as I stood close to Archer, paralyzed, lying in his hospital bed with the tubes draining his lungs, still looking a little narcotized, I said, you know, we're hopeful. And I smiled so I could feel hopeful. I told her, it's just a matter of time before Archer will be fine again. And he will walk again. He will. And in that moment, I believed that. I had no idea of what the word quadriplegia meant, but I did believe that Archer would heal and not be paralyzed forever and that he would walk. And I also felt that I needed him 
to believe this too. Deeply in his cells. The nurse didn't say anything, and I took in a breath. I had this sort of knowing that even if he were drugged, his cells would hear me. I know you might think that's crazy and a little out there, but one of my favorite science studies is the work of Dr. Masuro Emoto. You know him? Look him up. He's the Japanese scientist who showed how the molecular structure of water molecules can transform by sheer positive thoughts alone. It's true. Look him up. He's revolutionized the idea that human thoughts and intentions can and do impact the physical world. What do you think about that? Well, a decade or so ago when I learned of his work, I was intrigued. And since then, I talked to my garden differently. I became a believer. But I hadn't really thought much more about it until as part of my look back, I realized I was deeply influenced by the collective intention of a gathered group of well-intended people. And it felt a little hokey, but I was all in. And when I began to talk to Archer's cells and his body, even if Archer couldn't, and even if that nurse and all of the medical staff in the whole world wouldn't, I could and I would. Are you thirsty, Arch? As I watched over Archer, he had opened his eyes and was making a motion with his lips, even with that fat tube in his mouth. I said, Archer, blink twice if you're asking for something. As I watched, ready to quickly go and get the ABC board on the counter, he blinked twice. And as he did so, he moved his tongue and I knew he was thirsty. I realized Archer hadn't had anything to drink for two days. Archer, are you thirsty, honey? Blink twice if yes. He slowly blinked twice. He was in slow motion. But oh my, what am I going to do? I felt a surge of excitement that he was awake and alert and that he had made a request. I quickly went to the sink in the hospital room and looked around for a cup. I couldn't find one. I wasn't sure how I was going to get a cup of water in him anyway, with all the tubes in his nose and mouth. So I looked around and grabbed a clean hospital washcloth and got it wet and wrung it out but not too much, and I raced back to his bed. Here, baby, I said as I held the washcloth right over his mouth and squeezed a couple drops over his lips. His tongue slowly searched for the two to three water droplets on his lips like they were pearls of nectar. His movement of his mouth was very deliberate. He then began to blink more. I was excited and dripped another two drops onto his lips, but it dribbled down the side of his mouth. Oh, I'm so sorry, Arch. And so I missed the angle and thinking it may have just been too much. He blinked very slowly again, but a lot. One blink, two blinks, three blinks, and again. And I realized he was telling me he wanted more. Oh, of course, sweetheart, I'll get you more. I raced quickly back to the sink and then back to his bed with the wet rung washcloth. Just then, a nurse came in and saw what I was doing. Your son is not to have any liquids, she said. I beg your pardon, I asked. No liquids, she repeated. But why, I asked. It's against the protocol, she said. What protocol? He's thirsty, 
I said, almost pleading with her. I was stunned, really, as I had been almost giddy that Archer was awake and had a request. I glanced at Paula, who had been preparing to leave the room, but then Archer had opened his eyes and another nurse had come to tell us my sister had arrived and was in the waiting room and we needed to get her to escort her back and then switch places. The staff had gotten quite strict with us and the only two-in-a-room rule, which is why I found that little chair to put in the corner, honestly, hoping they wouldn't even notice me. But as I looked at Paula, I could tell that she too was lifted up by Archer's responsiveness. She had walked back to Archer's bed and was holding his hand. I looked at her in disbelief about what the nurse had just said, and she looked at me too. And I was happy to say she didn't look so gray. And for a moment, the empty look on her face turned to even a little indignance, like, what? (laughs) That was fine with me because I was as happy to see her responsive as I was happy to see Archer awake. You know, No one gets angry about something if they don't care. Maybe my girl was back. It's amazing how tiny things like a little bit of responsiveness can really change everything in the blink of an eye. Archer's opening his eyes and his blinks and Paula's expression of irritation, both lifted my soul. I had been so worried about both of them. I asked the nurse if I could just brush Archer's lips with the wet towel. She frowned and said, but a tad bit softer, no liquids. I thought it was just flat out against humanity to deny Archer a wet washcloth on his very dried and cracked lips. Don't nurses understand what it is like? Haven't they had someone in their lives who just wanted something so simple, something that would be so meaningful to them, something that would be so easy to give to them? How could you deny and withhold that? It just seemed so cruel. I didn't understand. I mean, surely they've been here and seen so many families with loved ones in real need who needed simple things. Surely they understood this. Maybe that's just it. They've been here and seen so many families in real need. I suspected Maybe she had just gotten numb. I don't know, but I remember thinking to myself, I wish I hadn't asked. You know that expression, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, right? I really couldn't imagine and didn't believe that a cool, damp rag on Archer's lips would cause him harm. I was confused, though. She was the nurse, and if it truly would cause Archer any harm, I wouldn't do it, even if that is what he was asking. But she didn't give me any reason why. To tell me it was against protocol told me nothing. I just didn't know. I remember pausing for a moment, taking in a deep breath, Something in my soul told me I couldn't fully believe that it would cause harm. You know what happened then? She and I had a little stare down. We did. I hadn't backed off and was still holding the cold, wet cloth near Archer. She was standing there like a tank. She just stood there, almost with her hands on her hips. It was weird, but I didn't think she was right. So 
I started to negotiate with her. I said, Archer's awake. He is thirsty. How can we get him something to drink or quench his thirst? And she said, he's not dehydrated. I said, but he hasn't had anything to eat or drink in two days. And she said, he's getting all the fluids he needs. That puzzled me. How? I asked. She looked at me like I was really stupid. The drip bags. Oh, I really had not understood that. We had never been in a hospital before overnight for any length of time. I thought they were just for medicine. But honestly, I really hadn't even thought that far. I was so focused on trying to find out what drugs they were giving him and his chest x-rays and turning him on his side and calling the insurance company and trying to get his medical records and not getting answers. And I hadn't thought about food or drink. Oh, so that's what those other bags are. Okay. I said to her, I didn't know. Thanks. I think I understand now. But as I looked up and around, he had six of those drip bags. And I realized I didn't really understand. They were all full of clear liquid. So I asked, is there food in those bags too? And she said, no, saline. And I said, then how is he eating? And she said, he's getting all he needs through the feeding tube. And she pointed to her nose. Oh, that tube in Archer's nose had food in it. Wow, that was news to me too. I really had no idea. I thought it was another air tube for breathing. Boy, was I wrong. I had so much to learn. I said to her, oh, I see, but I pressed on, but what about for his lips? They're so dry and he is still thirsty. Isn't there something we can do for him? Just like a wet washcloth or something? There was silence. She didn't move, but I felt she softened maybe for a moment. So I remained quiet. I could tell she might be considering the situation. She then told me she would see what could be done if I promised her I would not give Archer anything to drink. I did. Paula was quite alert now, and I nodded to her, and we were in accord. Just then, my sister Elizabeth came in with Pete, who had gone to get her. She told us my son Dewey was on his way. I told her Kathy G had brought lunch, and I'm sure there were leftovers in the family waiting room. You know, Archer seemed a bit responsive and seemed to acknowledge Elizabeth's presence. Just about then, Dr. Radcliffe, Archer's next surgeon, walked into Archer's hospital room. It was actually a breath of fresh air for me, a familiar face now, someone who might be able to answer my questions. I had so many questions now. I had been hoping he'd come back, but I just didn't know when or if he would when we had our first family meeting, which was just yesterday. I'd asked if he'd come back and talk with us again. You know, it's funny because even though I was in a daze then with Archer just coming out of surgery and all, and Dr. Radcliffe telling us our son was a quadriplegic, I remember sort of knowing I was in a daze. It's really hard to explain, but 
I don't know if you have ever had something like that happen to you. You're in shock and you know you're in shock. Well, I mean, you don't know you're in shock. It's not cognitive like that. But you do know that something has happened to you and you know you're not able to function really or communicate or think clearly in the way you normally do. It's really weird because you're aware of things happening. You just can't put words to them. Like I couldn't formulate the thoughts or the words I needed, but I was aware I wasn't quite right. And I wasn't able to line up my movements with what I wanted to do with my thoughts. Like I, I couldn't figure out where to write my name on a form or figure out how to do a voice memo on my phone. But I knew I needed to write my name and I knew I needed to make a recording, but I wanted to, I just couldn't, even though those are things I normally could easily do. Yeah, I was shocked. I get it, why they call it shock. It's sort of like paralysis or like it stops everything. Anyway, I had this sort of knowing then that I would have a lot of questions later. And by the end of that meeting, I had enough language to ask if he'd come back and talk with us again today. It was really just an instinctive request practiced many times because that's the request I have been extending to families over the years whom I've worked with as a transformative mediator. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it's really not at all. It's very intuitive that the worse a situation gets, the more we need to connect and talk things through. A lot of people don't want to do that. Much to Dr. Radcliffe's credit, he agreed. And he did return. I have to hand it to him. And even more so, since I had subsequently learned from the nurses that what I called a family meeting was not standard hospital policy. So I looked at Paul and Pete to see if they would come with me to meet with Dr. Radcliffe. At that moment, I wondered where my husband Billy was. Do you all know where dad is? I asked my big kids. They supposed he was back in Cape May. I'm honestly not even sure where Billy was, but it would be like him to not be here when others of us were, as he's practical like that. But yet, I really didn't know. And that is another set of questions I still have and may never have all the answers to. What? was it like for Billy? Five years later, he is not ready to talk much about this. And that's okay. But he has been very instrumental in helping me get my research together for this podcast, downloading the 3,000 pages of text messages the first week in the trauma ICU and setting up the recording studio for me to produce this. And when I recorded the first episode, he was there with me to make sure the microphones were right. But you know, he just cried as he listened to the call. So I know it must have been very painful. He's such a good man and a good dad. His rivers run deep too. You know, we each unpack our trauma stories when we're ready. As Paula, Pete, and I followed Dr. Radcliffe out of Archer's hospital room out into the hallway, we all seemed to know where we were headed for our family meeting, the family waiting room. <laughs> I was grateful for this little ante room that was just around the corner from room 3117. It was Pete who made sure the meeting was recorded on a voice memo so I could remember 
what Dr. Radcliffe said. It was a good thing. I was struggling to understand Archer's injury and the medical jargon. I really had never heard the word quadriplegic. I really wanted to know what was possible or when Archer would have use of his arms and hands and legs. I had never heard the terms spinal fusion or C4, C5, C6. It was Paula who probably understood it best. What I do remember vividly, though, that did not need to be recorded, was my son Pete. He was there and not there, aloof, but hyper-listening, sort of looming, but not engaged as he stood behind Dr. Radcliffe, Paula, and me. We had pushed the chairs together in a circle. I guess he was just taking it all in, not saying a word, but also not sitting in our circle. It was just something I noticed and remembered. This meeting would be the last time we would see Dr. Radcliffe at Atlanticare. Here is an excerpt. I told you C5 controls the diaphragm also. So for all we know, maybe the nerve that controls the diaphragm is also moving a little bit more today than yesterday. So, I mean, there's like... What does C5 control? The shoulders, the deltoid muscles. The shoulders, the and deltoid so, muscles. And so, so... Deltoids are in your chest. No, those are pecs. Deltoids are, are the shoulders. So, um, um, C5 does control the pecs also, but the main muscle is the deltoid. So, like, people who have a C5 level and nothing below can only really lift their arm up. And people with biceps can actually, you know, move the arm. Um, and the combination of having delta and biceps enables you to move the arm in space. And uh, that's like CAT1. That's far. So, so that's good. So we, so he could get movement back in his hands and fingers. What is, what did you mean, C8? That's far. Like, I mean, you have to recover three more levels to get to there. Like it starts five, and if you damage five, then it, everything below five. Oh, I see. I understand. How many C's are there? Eight. So he's damaged five, six, seven, and eight. No, you know, it's five. He's but five but it, if you think of a river, you know, like if you put a dam on the river here, yeah. everything below that ceases. A dam. Wow. That was a powerful analogy. Everything below ceases. Oh, that was just so heavy. So he didn't think Archer had moved his hand. It was all sobering. And it was helpful to understand the levels of the body. But I didn't believe it all ceased for Archer. I didn't want to believe it all ceased. And Dr. Radcliffe had said it so casually, like maybe he had his grocery list on his mind or he was teaching a class. But I had Archer's future on my mind. I thought that Archer would get back more than he said. He will walk again. We were on God's time. I remember having a strong inner reaction as I listened to Dr. Radcliffe. More of a feeling that the metals in my body were being galvanized or something. It was really like that. It was this steeliness that I would do my part on my time, whatever God needed, and we were all going to do whatever it took for Archer to have more recovery than what Dr. Radcliffe had said. Archer was not what those couple of nurses had said either. But okay, I get it now medically. So we had to start at the top and work our way down. I get it. So... I believe we can get his arms and hands back working with God's mercy and grace. Please, dear Lord. Please, Jesus. 
please Mary. It's Archer, our artist, our painter, our cook, our chess player, our lacrosse player, our big hugger. He needs his arms and hands. He'd get them back. I believe that. I did. He needs his arms, Lord. Please give him back his arms. Surely we filed back into room 3117 to something, or should I say someone, quite unexpected, but delightfully so. Shirley Davis, I had to pause and take in the sight. What in the world are you doing here? I exclaimed as I wrapped my arms around our friend from our church in Baltimore over three hours away. I was surprised and delighted to see her. Shirley had taught our kids Sunday school, what we had called little people's church over the years. And she and Billy had spent loads of time together preparing for special church services. She was a real part of all our lives because she really was the person behind the scenes running things at our church. And she had the keys to everything. So if you needed something, you called Shirley. And there she was at Archer's bedside. And she had a rosary in her hands. Shirley crowed. There was no way I couldn't come to see my baby. That's what we do as family. You know. And it was true. Shirley was like family to us. I then said, how did you get here? I mean, in here, since I was very aware of the waiting room and the two-person only rule, although I'd been to the various people at the front desk telling them we have a lot of family members and trying to familiarize them with who we were so my kids didn't have to show their IDs and wait to be looked up in the computer every time they came in and out. And Shirley laughed and said in her droll, kind of sarcastic way, well, you know I'm a retired police officer. I just walked in. She then laughed and said, one nurse did come and asked if she could help me. And I told her I was family. She said, referring to her ebony-colored skin, but they better not mess with me. I smiled because I always love Shirley's no-nonsense, down-to-earth way. Oh, I was so very happy to see her. Do you know she was en route in Maryland to New Jersey, headed for a convention that day, and got a call from our other church sacristan, Thad, that Archer had been badly injured. She totally rerouted her trip, got on a train, and ended up skipping her convention entirely. I was really touched by that. I shook my head in amazement of how fast the news had traveled too. But it took my breath away how she had rerouted at the drop of a hat and just came. But what I really remember was when I walked back into Archer's room, I thought I was seeing an angel. I really did. I had to stop and take it in as it was all so out of context and so peaceful and serene. I interviewed Shirley just before this podcast as we saw each other for the first time after a number of years. She had married and moved. Here's an excerpt of my interview with Shirley Davis Rawson. But I knew I had to get for the convention. And Thad called me and, and let me know that something had happened to Archer. And I said, well, I'm going in that direction. So I'll just stop in and check on him. And um, I got there and I was like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to go to the convention. How did you get in? 
I got there and I asked him, you know, I told him Archer, I wanted to see Archer Sim. And they told me what room he was in. I said, okay. They told me. It's my way of just doing things. What, did, did you pull out your old badge? <laughs> no, I, I, I have done that. But um, I just, it was my way. Hey, no one stopped me. I walked through and went to the room. This is my kid. And yes, I am family. I am family to so many of our children. I watched them grow up. I'm seeing most of them being born and watched them grow up. Yes, you have. And I was a confirmation teacher. And yeah. I was going to see my baby. And yeah. they told me where he was. And no one stopped me. No one asked me. No one, you know, said, hey, who are you? I was just amazed. This was all new to me. But do you know what else Shirley told me? I learned something extraordinary, extraordinary to me. I went to his room. So I go in, I go in there and, and it's just Archer and me. So I stood there, I talked to him for a while. And then I said, let's do the rosary. And um, stood there, talked to him for a bit. Home, everything's going to be okay, Arch. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And I stood there and I held his hand and I went through all the decades of the rosary. The, every single one of them. That's what, 50 um, Hail Marys. And I knew them all by heart. So I'm standing there and I'm, I'm doing the mysteries. I'm doing the Hail Marys. I'm holding on to this hand. And we get all the way through the five decades of the rosary. And I was there a long time, and I'm going, where is everybody? Why is no one here? And he started squeezing my hand. Archer squeezed my hand. And then he started gurgling. And I'm going, wait a minute, baby. Wait a minute. Let me let my hand go. Let me go get a nurse. So I went to get a nurse for them to come in and suction him out. And um, she came in, and she said, who are you? I said, I'm family. <laughs> I said, where's the rest of my family? And she said that you guys were down the hallway talking to the doctor. So, yeah, you came down there and he was telling you that, you know, things that I was like, oh, no, that can't be. I said, he's been squeezing my hand for like 20 some minutes in the room and, and everybody jumped up and ran out. That was the was most wonderful moment because I didn't know the extent of his injury and all I know is he was squeezing my hand as I was going through that rosary and, and I loved doing the rosary. When Shirley recently told me, it all came flooding back. Oh yes, she had said squeezing and I remember her saying, oh yes, strong. I love that moment and hearing that again even if it was just a moment. That angel brought us hope that afternoon. Hope. It can really lift you up and carry you. You know what I mean? And I wondered if Archer felt hopeful and if he was trying to communicate that to Shirley. I do remember asking a different nurse about what I felt was Archer's hand moving as well, but was told again, it's just the muscles twitching. It's not what you think. But I knew differently. That intensive care unit was a harsh place, but it was what I knew. And when Shirley told me, I believe Shirley, I did. There was something very true about what she said, and Shirley Davis was a straight shooter. And what she said resonated with my heart. There are so many things that happen with Archer that I just cannot fully explain. You know, you might say Shirley was just hopeful. Maybe. Hope, it's a real thing. It is. Hope can transform stark reality. That's what I believe. 
or maybe it's hope that can keep us alive or that sustains us as we work through our worst nightmares or that allows us to make it through our traumas until we are in a place to do the inner work to metabolize and make sense of our experiences. Either way, hope is powerful. I think it comes from spiritual realms. It's not earthly. It's like a gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? I bet you do. And it's these little shifts and small observations that remind us it is there all along for us. It is. Now, it doesn't spare us from sorrow, but it lifts us up through sorrow. I bet you have had your heart lifted by hope too on occasion. Yes? I want to believe Archer squeezed Shirley's hand even to this day. As I look back on those days, it's a good memory. I also remember trying hard all day as I sat in that hospital room to formulate game plans for Archer's recovery. I was very focused on constant adjustments in my mind as I got new information for what I needed to do for Archer. If they said Archer was not ever going to walk again, then we would make sure he at least had use of his hands despite what Dr. Radcliffe, kind as he was, might have said. If they said Archer's lungs or they might not inflate, then we need to figure out how to patch that puncture. It was something like that. Dr. Radcliffe and all the big kids had left, and Shirley too. But I took a sweet picture of her holding Archer's hand before she left. I said aloud, Archer Sempt, we are going to figure this out. Don't you worry. I looked over at Archer, who all of a sudden looked somewhat clear-eyed and attentive as Dewey had arrived and taken over reading aloud to him from Sue Chef. And my sister Elizabeth was back too, sitting on the other side of the bed, quietly holding his hand. It was peaceful, and for a flicker of a moment, again, I felt carried. Life can change in the blink of an eye. I'm wondering, as I make my way through this story, what your thoughts are about secondary trauma. I'm learning more and more from the interviews what it was like for others close to Archer, like my children, Archer's brother and sister, and even his friends who are very much impacted by his injury. I have been interested in what kind of support we all need to work our way through trauma. To this day, my heart aches for all my darling children and for Billy, because there we were, all together. But we really only had so much capacity to be there fully for each other, for what we each needed. Yeah, we need trauma care teams in hospitals. We really do understand this. And if not in hospitals, we need a dedicated hotline for families and close friends to call when their loved one is in the trauma intensive care unit in a life or death or life altering situation, such as a spinal cord injury. I've imagined this for some years now. And the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, they're interested in this too. As I study more and learn more and do more inner work myself, I realize we are all carrying some trauma in our lives from one chapter or another. A deep heartache, a loss of a parent, a loss of a sibling, 
the loss of a child and a divorce too, the loss of a marriage and often of a family. And we also carry the traumas of generations and what we've done or contributed to the harm of a group of people or of the environment. We are all wounded, if not in this life, in the life our ancestors handed to us. And it always takes a willing heart to do trauma work, especially when we have experienced not just one traumatic event, but multiple events in our lives. All it takes is one event to really throw us off, unseat us. The hopeful part, and I am a very hopeful person, and I hope you are too, is that we can write ourselves wholly over time. We can. Or we can stuff it. We can pretend or deny it and just live with numbness. If that is the choice, the numbness will just get more and more frozen. If it's numbness, it still has expression, such as when we compartmentalize or clinically distance. Or it might be expressed in hyperactivity or in seemingly unexplained or chronic anger. Even numbness has energy. And trapped energy is always seeking a place to escape. Or it might seek expression in gastrointestinal issues or skin issues or memory loss issues. Yeah, something else I'd like to talk about in a later episode is the impact of trauma, unresolved, unmetabolized on Alzheimer's. All these ailments and conditions are just that, conditions. Our minds and bodies can become conditioned in repetitive responses that are just blockages, and we might not even be aware of them. Ironically, a catastrophic event of major loss in our later lives is actually a time of great shakeup, a loosening of earlier traumas and an opportunity to explore and choose to enter the path of the healing journey. It's not an overnight thing. It takes a while. And it's never too late to start. You know, when people think of a trauma, they often think of a major, terrible, painful event, and rightly so. But a trauma is also any shock to the system. And as we think about individuals, any shock to the body. And that includes any form of physical violence car accidents, slipping and falling, and even surgery itself. It does. I know that may sound radical, but if you don't resist this view of trauma and just say, okay, I'll be open, it allows a wider exploration of what is possible with interpersonal healing. There are many aspects of our lives we cannot avoid or delete entirely, and nor do we need to or want to. But every injury is an opportunity to look within and begin a new relationship with ourselves, with relational awareness of what is going on on the inside. You can begin this inner work with the practice of a simple body scan, slowly focusing on how your body feels from head to toe on the outside and the inside. 
to familiarize yourself with how your body is impacted by the world and reacts to the world and to others. Our bodies, gratitude for our bodies. It's a beautiful, wide open gateway for healing and for hope when we begin to loosen our numbness. And you're not stuck in your body, nor are you stuck with your own or other's traumas. I mean, you might be, but you're not stuck forever. It is such a worthwhile journey for yourself and for others because all the unhealed wounds we carry are often the source of why we cause others to suffer around us. They are. So it's good for you and for others and for the planet to do this inner work and this body work. Your wounds are real and you can embrace them, befriend them and explore them, feel them, attune to them. And then in time, over time, release them because you have digested them fully and they can then provide you nourishment and wisdom rather than causing you and others in your life pain. Yes, every time our hearts are broken, there is a healing path down which is a gateway to hope. And once you walk through that gate, Oh, there are so many ways to encounter hope again and again. It's all relational. Yes, we are all part of something larger. And you are valued as you are in this world and other worlds beyond this world. We are all so interconnected. You can cultivate hope in your life just by noticing small, beautiful things. Like wherever you are right now, as you are listening, notice something beautiful around you. Offer gratitude for that beauty in your thoughts. Feel that gratitude in your emotions. And experience a shift in your body. It's truly extraordinary. And don't you feel more hopeful? In closing, let us each think of someone we know, someone close to you, or someone you don't even know, but can imagine, who is in great pain over the loss of a loved one, of a child, a son, a daughter, a baby, a teenager, a young adult. See if you can enter into their feeling of the seemingly insurmountable loss, the never be the same life. And be aware not to move too quickly with soothing thoughts. But first, see if you can really feel into their pain through your heart because it's real. It won't ever be the same on this plane of living. There's no gain around that. And when you attune to another and feel their broken heart and feel that gaping hole that they feel, they attune with your heart. And there is then a higher likelihood that they might now feel your beating heart of compassion and caring 
You see, the only way through trauma and loss is through that gaping hole. When they're ready, not before. And we can provide the healing energy field for others, like an invitation, a standing invitation, waiting for them when they are ready to begin. And they will know because the pain of living with that hole will just be too great to bear at some point. And we will be here for them to help ease that burden, right? We will. And this entering into their experience will then open up our hearts so that we might bear whatever burdens we too are carrying. We can then co-create a healing energy field to do the ongoing inner work of trauma healing. None of us is alone. Pause for a moment and see what your own heart is whispering to you right now. It might be saying, come inward. It might be saying, live, live in grace, live in love, live with hope, live again fully. It's what those we have lost want most for us. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Semph directly, louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you.